Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. And uh, good morning. Welcome to Green Left Radio on 3CR. Um, yeah, what's going on? Hi. So today we, um, Jacob and Zane, are in the studio um, this week. Um, and actually, before um, I give a kind of a preview of what we're going to be talking about um, this morning, um, I'd like to acknowledge um, that FreeCR is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay our respect to Elders past and present, and that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty has never... Okay, so um, in terms of the latest news um, from... Green Left Weekly and around the headlines. Actually, one story I kind of want to start talking about is actually about recycling um, because I think this is kind of an interesting uh, topic that's quite overlooked, uh, you know. But basically, um, it was in the headlines as of on Thursday um, that recycling is look it will likely be dumped by councils nationwide as cloths um, blow out, and that's according to a government association. Um, this comes um, from the fact that the many count local councils in Queensland, including. Um, most notably the Ipswich City Council, um, which um, said that China's import ban on recycling and the rising level of contaminated or non-recyclable rubbish in yellow bins meant that it become too costly um, for the city to recycle. From So from now on, everything um, is going to be placed in yellow bins, which would go straight to landfill. And of course, more than half of the items being placed in Ipswich's yellow bins is unrecyclable waste, and the city's curbside collections have already been going to landfill for four weeks. Um, at this point, though, it's only been Ipswich, but Brisbane, Logan, and Gold Coast councils have so far ruled out going to suit, um, despite this head, um, despite the headline I read earlier. But there is kind of an issue that. Um, Local councils in New South Wales, uh, including some in Sydney, are basically weeks away from abandoning their recycling screens. Um, you know, what, what's been happening is the president of the local government, New South Wales, Linda Scott, um, it's reported in the ABC, said a number of councils were struggling to process recycling and funding was needed. And, I mean, some um, alternatives that have been suggested um, has been... Uh, um, seeking subsidies um, from the ratepayers um, to pay for the ho- um, cost of recycling, and um, but now in terms of kind of like the backlash, um, residents in Ipswich have been quite alarmed uh, by um, by these kind of developments. With um, you know the deputy premier Jackie Trad said that Ipswich um, City Council has let down its ratepayers by throwing in the towel on what is an important service, um, and of course you know. 
Um, uh, Mr. Monahan um, from Echo Lateral said Ipswich's council decision was a backward step and set a dangerous bench, um, um, benchmark. Um, they say the majority of the Western world now recycles and recycles quite effectively. Indest- industries are built up around the recycled material that's been supplied by high school, um, hot, not high school, hot household recycling. So it's quite a frightening development, he said. And of course, there's concerns that this could, um, the recent decisions by Ipswich could lead to a kind of domino effect from council to council. Um, before you know it, everyone will abandon it because it will be a case of, well, that's good enough for them. We can save some revenue, so it's good enough for us. Um, so that's just a kind of bit of a summary, um, you know, from this kind of shrubbing development around recycling. And, you know, I kind of want to give a bit of my analysis on it. And I think one of the issues I think is, um, is the is the kind of lack of kind of you know national kind of infrastructure to deal with the recycling plan? I mean, there was a kind of question raised in a, uh, it appeared in the in the in in um, the Whittle Sea Leader around um, the lead candidate from this new party, the new party Victorian Socialists, put up this idea that you know why don't we have a to deal with in light of this actual whole problem of you know China refusing to take the um, the recycling from um, Australia and of course that goes for a lot of other countries. Why don't we build a you know a local um, recycling plant, mm, publicly owned, publicly owned, and you know especially in a place like um, in the case in the context of Victoria in say South Morang where you know it's dying for some infrastructure you know proper jobs and programs mm. and i guess the other issue is recycling is in itself um problematic because it's not particularly addressing the problems of production of goods under capitalism in fact there's no real pressure on a lot of companies um, who produce unsustainably because a lot of these companies almost see recycling as kind of like an easy way out. That's right. And I think that the Chinese import ban um, is really in response to that because it's just the cheap solution and has been for a couple of decades now. Is There's no pressure to recycle locally. You just chuck all your rubbish on a boat and send it to China and they'll deal with it. And uh, I think China can't deal with that volume of waste. Mm. I think a lot of the recycling plants there were little sort of locally run things that were really polluting. Like when you burn plastic, it's real filthy stuff. Uh, And I think the um, Chinese authorities were also concerned about the uh, cleanliness or the, the purity of imports. So... One issue is people chucking out random rubbish and stuff in their um, in their recycling bin, and then that turns up and it's like it's kind of a real pain in the ass to resort everything at the recycling plant. Yeah, and I think guess another point I want to make is I also think um, um, going back to the article from um, this sort of question of uh, of um, recycling costs um, being you know, trickled down to the ratepayer, I think is quite an outrageous idea. Mm. You know, especially since a lot of the waste, um, uh, you know, actually comes from the top end of town, from like, you know, corporations who produce ma- massive amounts of products that are essentially unstable. And we are expected to shoulder the cost of, you know... Dealing uh, with their deal- rubbish. With dealing yeah. with their, essentially their rubbish. Um, yeah. So I think that's... Uh, or the idea that you know, uh, you know, recycling um, should trickle down to the ratepayer, I think, is 
is um, ridiculous, mm. and I think there has to be some um, alter- alternative solution. Well, the other thing is, my my partner's from Germany, and going over there, you just see how simple it is. Their bottle system, pretty much all of their bottles are reused. They've either got plastic bottles that are a bit thicker than the ones that we've got here, and they've got a little bit of sort of frosting on them from where they've been used and used and used and used over and over again. The glass bottles are reused. That used to be the case here until it was gotten rid of. Um, there's actually no reason that you can't have reusable containers for things other than beverages. Like we could have boxes. So that when you go to the um, supermarket and you buy some prepackaged salad, for instance, it's not in a disposable plastic bag. It's in a basically a Tupperware container which you take it home, have your salad, and then you return your Tupperware container to um, your supermarket and you get a return of a deposit, the same as you would with Mm. bottles. Uh, And I think there's actually no reason that we can't have a whole lot of stuff packaged in reusable containers instead of you get this little bit of stuff and then you chuck out the box or the bag or Mm. the... Uh, yeah, I think this is a particularly interesting topic. Actually, I think that warrants a bit um, further ex- exploration on our program. Like, we potentially, we could have someone uh, um, to interview about this topic and um, talk about the the kind of issues that we've just kind of raised in our program from this um, news article from ABC, and then talk further in more detail about alternatives. Mm. Yeah, just something to flag there. Now, um, I guess um, maybe we could play a quick announcement and then we'll go on to the next um, news story. Okay, um, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Uh, it's 7 and 11 a.m. on the 855 a.m. dial. Um, and you're possibly uh, even listening it to, um, to this program on the website on freecr.org.au. Now, I guess next thing I want to report on, um, I forgot actually... As a matter of procedure, I didn't really give a uh, a preview of what we got coming up in our program. Um, so for the first forty five minutes of the program, of which twelve minutes have passed, we're just going to be um, discussing kind of ran- um, different news articles from Green Left Weekly and um, local um, news, and giving a bit of a radical kind of take on on some of these news stories. Um, but then at seven forty five a.m., we're going to be having an interview with an environmental activist in. Um, in Tasmania, about this particular environmental struggle around the Tarkin. Uh, Tarkin, yeah. The Tarkin. And then at 8, 10 a.m., we're going to be speaking to Dave Holmes from Australians for Kurdistan uh, to talk about their um, Solidarity with Afrin organising meeting that's happening tonight and give a bit of context for that. So that's um, what we got lined up for the program um, th- uh, this week. Um, now, I want to move on to the next um, news um, story about the kind of big thing that's been in the headlines um, is the Change the Rules campaign um, by Ace, um, by the Australian Council of Trade Unions, ACTU. Uh, on maybe just to start from the beginning, um, this on Tuesday there was a mass delegates meeting um, that attracted um, where delegates from all or pretty much every trade union under the sun was invited to uh, attend um and to give a bit of report on it from april 17th um more than 2000 delegates um from unions across australia uh you know came into an overwhelmingly supported statewide action on may 9th as part of the change rules campaign 
And as reporting here in Green Left Weekly, um, the April 17th meeting was one of the largest gatherings of unionists um, seen for some time as delegates from a range of um, blue colour and white collar sectors filled the Melbourne Town Hall. And and having been at the meeting myself, it was so massive um, that there was more than they couldn't actually fit every delegate um, in the room. And so more than 200 delegates were turned away at the door because they couldn't fit them. Uh, I think they, I remember they did, um, they were trying to actually kick out all the organisers and union officials to try and get delegates in, but I'm not sure how successful uh, they were able um, to um, What I did notice was my union, um, United Voice, um, who turned up in great numbers, ended up having their own meeting um, at, the, at, their own, at their office. Yeah, nice. Now, to um, give a report on some of the thing, a uh, bit of a summary of what was said at this mass meeting, um, the Australian Council of Trade Unions Secretary, um, Salik McManus, explained the tasks ahead um, for the Change the Rules campaign, which included winning public opinion and challenging the myth of trickle-down economics. Um, McManus emphasised the need for a change of government and to get new industrial laws through the Senate with the help of the cost branch, but she also stressed that workers need to build a movement that is unstoppable. Um, and she said that, you know, it is not normal in OECD countries to have 40% of the workforce in insecure work. Uh, and talking about a key demand, uh, a key demand um, for a future government is to use government buying power to only contract with businesses that provide secure local jobs. Um, one of the demands here that Sally McManus spoke about with um, in light of the fact that there's 23% of workers are on award minimums, um, McManus called for restoring mechanisms to allow for award conditions to increase as enterprise agreements improve. And one other thing that McManus mentioned that, you know, um, Australia has one of the most gender segregated workforces in the world and that the pay gap has not changed in 20 years. Mm. Um, McManus called for a total change in the bargaining system. Um, I mean, one of the demands, I think, of this Change the Rules campaign is, and we spoke about it previously on one of our previous programs, is right now um, our current um, agree, uh, the way sort of wages are kind of negotiated between the employer and the employees is um, on an enterprise bargaining agreement kind of scheme, which basically means that yeah, it's... On a, on a workplace by workplace. On a workplace level. by workplace basis. Hmm. One of the things that this Change the Rules campaign is seeking to change is return back to an old system where it was based, where it's industrial industry word, yeah. Uh, industrial grants. And in fact, the implication of that, just to go give you a good information, right now... I mean, one of the things we've reported on is um, in universities, there's been some um, real problems with um, uh, the NTU trying to win proper enterprise bargaining agreements for all their workers. If there was a strong industrial, if, if we went back to industrial-based kind of bargaining agreements, you wouldn't have a situation where you had 
where you had Murdoch University basically scrap its enterprise bargaining agreements um, and screwing over a whole bunch of workers. Mm. The same uh, if we had a, if there was a good industrial wide um, agreement for all those workers, it would apply to. I imagine it would apply to every single university, and the mm. NTU wouldn't have to negotiate for, by on on a um, one university at a time. Which, mm. and in fact, this this would actually be something that would actually build more solidarity between the you know the different branches of the NTU. Yeah, it, it probably <clears throat> you probably could still have some like local provisions for your campus. You could have an EBA that is specific to your campus, but the the main sort of baseline would be industry wide agreements. Mm-hmm. And you can see why they got rid of that because it, it clearly benefits the working class over the bosses if you do bargain at an industry wide level because it's got participation from a bigger chunk of this huge thing that is the working class. Hmm. Now, to talk, uh, um, to quote um, Troy Gray, um, at the at the meeting, Troy Gray told um, delegates that this campaign isn't simply about removing the government. If we do this right, there will simply be collateral damage. This is about putting the union movement back where we belong. And, um, and of course, you know, um, one following the mass meeting, um, um, uh, I should want to just quote Troy Carter. Troy Carter, a delegate from the SO um, plant at Longford, um, was one of the speakers. And for more than 300 days, SO maintenance workers have been on strike since the company sacked its workforce and then offered them the same jobs at 30% less pay. Um, and and, um, and following that mass meeting, um, the workers marched the SO headquarters to show solidarity with the Longford workers in that dispute. Hmm. And that's um, <coughs> SO is owned by Exxon Mobil, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Who are one of the seven hundred and twenty-three companies or whatever it is who pay no tax and haven't paid tax for years. And I think I'm pretty sure it was Exxon Mobil announced that they're not planning on paying any tax until the year two thousand and twenty-one or something. Yeah. And they're making billions of dollars of revenue, billions of dollars of profits. And um, funnily enough, that's capitalism for you. The uh, what did Marx say? The the capital is like a vampire, and the more it lives, the more it sucks your blood. <laughs> like the bigger these corporations are, the more profit they're making, the more power they have, the more they use that power to crush their workforce into the ground and reduce the the pay that their workers are getting yeah <laughs> now um just wonder the last thing i want to conclude this um report back on the mass meeting is um just to note down that one of the purposes of this mass meeting was to endorse this big um mass union rally which is planned in melbourne on may the 9th at 10 a.m um so just going to put put this in your calendars and you know uh, and um, that the Change Rules Mass Union Rally will be hap- first one will be happening on May the 9th at 10 a.m. Um, outside Victorian Trades Hall. And encourage you to bring all your f- friends if you're not working, or and talk to your workmates about attending that um, that rally. Yep, it's going to be a big one. Mm. Now, just a just a quick um, kind of comment. I guess one of the issues. Um, 
is about this um, about the change of the rules, um, mass union rallies. There ha- about not about the campaign, not the rally. Um, is there hasn't really been that specific in terms of the demands they've put forward. Mm. I mean, there's a number of articles in Green Left Weekly actually. In fact, there's an article um, by the former secretary of um, Victoria of Victorian Trades Hall Council. And, uh, and a former member of the ACTU executive. And I won't read the entire article, um, but he, got, he gives a bit of an outline on that the Change the Rules campaign um, must um, focus on eradicating anti-union laws. Mm. And specifically, he also thinks that, um, that, uh, that the, the campaign shouldn't just be another kind of cynical attempt to basically... It, basically, it shouldn't be another marginal seats campaign. Mm. It shouldn't be just another elect Labor, get Labor to fix it. Because the reality is the Labor Party are responsible for a lot of these anti-union laws. Yeah, and for the current situation where bosses are just terminating agreements. That's all in in uh, the, the Fair Work um, Australia legislation, work choices light, as it was referred to at the time. Yeah. And in the latest Green Left Weekly, um, Tim Gooden, who's a uh, former secretary of Geelong Trades Hall, um, currently a CFMU member and delegate, and he also won the Victorian Trades um, Trade Unionist of the Year uh, recently and also a member of the Social Alliance. He writes, he wrote an article here about um, sort of some of the 10 kind of demands um, that the Change the Rules campaign should kind of be about. Um, one of them should, um, one of them, and I think it's quite a crucial one, um, the first one that he writes is restore the right of union access slash right to organise on the job without penalties and restrictions because mm. currently there's a lot of workplaces where uh, you know, you don't, they don't even have a right to return. Uh, and um, so, uh, well, the right to entry, I mean, not the right to return, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking yeah. of another completely different topic. Yes, yes, Palestine. Yeah. All right, uh, so those articles are all up online on the website and Greenleaf Weekly. Um, mm. and so- I think the, the, just uh, before we do move on, the, the one other thing is the right to strike, and that's, the, that's something that hasn't been mentioned, and it's kind of a pretty crucial sort of like if you talk about changing the rules well the the key way in which the rules are broken is that if you want to go on strike at the moment workers have to jump through so many hoops and is such a restrictive regime where you have to be in an eba period you have to give your employer 72 hours notice you have to tick all these boxes and be wearing purple socks on a thursday afternoon before you're allowed <coughs> to go on strike and even then the uh, Fair Work Ombudsman or the, the Fair Work um, Commission can can stop your set of workers from going on strike, like happened with the rail workers. So I think the right to strike is such a crucial thing to mm. be talking about right now because yeah. really, surely that's the key rule that has to be changed. Yes. Yeah. Workers and I think need to um, be able to withdraw their labour freely. I think one thing I've kind of observed, and um, this is what you mentioned before, Zane, is like when it comes on the media, um, Sally McManus has been kind of quizzed a bit on some of this stuff, and including some conservative commentators said, oh, yes, Sally McManus, what she wants is she wants to return back to the, the terrible days of the 1970s where, you know, workers went on strike regularly and, yeah. it, you know, and it caused rife and destruction to the economy. Yeah, and when the greatest proportion of wealth was going in the pockets of labour versus capital in uh, Australia's history, when union density was at its highest, mm-hmm. 
And I think, you know, um, one thing I'll have to say is I think Sally McManus should um, own that and basically say mm. we, we, we do want the right to strike. We do mm. want to return to those days. Uh, and um, and I think one of the thing, other things, I think some people, some of our listeners might also not realise about our industrial relations laws that technically, um, if I'm being correct, it is actually... Under our current industrial relations, it is actually illegal for um, workers to go on strike in support of a particular cause yep. that's not relevant to their industry. Um, it is, um, or uh, and so you, and so if we I want, think it's section forty-five D and forty-five E of the Trade Practices Act nineteen. So I think it might have been the Fraser government that brought mm-hmm. that in, yeah. and yeah, it was all about. Basically, the green bands and solidarity strikes, and mm. and if and if we we if we you know if we you know a lot of us uh, a lot of our our listeners are probably radicals and capitalists, um, socialists and anarchists, um, and you know if we want if we want to have unions be the vehicle uh, for social change, um, because we want. Because in an ideal world, we would have unions go on strike in support of refugees in. In, to yeah. make the demand that offshore um, detention camps be closed down, mm. we would want um, unions um, um, to go and strike in support of other particular causes, like maybe equal pay for women across industry. Yeah, it could be anything. They're recycling. These councils are refusing to uh, recycle their waste, and they're going to send it to the dump. All right, a whole bunch of places go on strike and say that's not cool. We're not going back to the like mm. pre nineteen eighties, like before recycling was a mm. thing. And when we go back to um, the marriage equality campaign, the Yes campaign, you can kind of see the pockets of how unions uh, um, don't just play the role of advocating um, for workers or and their interests. They also play the role of advocating for their for the community because. Mm. The reality is union members are members of the community. They're part of this community and mm. the current industrial laws actually prevent them, actively prevent them from being able to play that role of standing up for the community and standing up for, for the oppressed. Mm. Yeah, I think if you look at an alternative sort of socialist society uh, and if you want to kind of protect against Stalinism or, you know, a centralisation of power, it's crucial that unions are free to play that role as broader social guardians and a social voice and not just be narrowly constrained to purely the economic interests of their workplace and they're in this little kind of ring-fenced bubble where they're not allowed to think about or talk about or take action on anything else. I think, you know, alternative society, it's so important this the right to strike and the right to unions to take industrial action about a whole range of social issues hmm. okay um i think that's we've probably exhausted that topic quite a bit now um but we're definitely going to be in the i want to talk about it more we'll definitely be discussing um we'll definitely make um green left radio be um give regular co- um, coverage and discussion and commentary on the change rules campaign because this is going to be a very long-term kind of campaign that will probably end that rally on May the 9th is not going to be the last. It'll probably be the first of many. Mm. Game on. You're listening to 3CR 855 on the AM dial and it is 7.30 and this is Green Left Radio. Radio, Mm. radio. Um, I might just give uh, just a quick news story just to highlight um, this. This is just something that um, came out uh, like... 
five to six hours ago, and I think this is quite important news. Um, but this is reported. This was reported in the ABC, um, and this is around Centrelink. But apparently, Centrelink are threatening to charge interest um, on nine hundred million dollars um, worth of welfare debts. And the federal government has, and it's right, right, written here, the federal government has decided to go after almost um, 170,000 um, Australians who have welfare debts, threatening to charge them interest on the funds owed, which have um, topped more than $900 million nationally. Uh, and, and so that's, yeah, that's basically the summary of the story. And I think it's a bit of a concern and we will um, we'll keep you highlighted on whether uh, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and so on will um, respond to it and kind of return nibs. Yeah, someone needs to challenge this in the higher court. There was talk about taking robo-debts and having class action against it. That fell over for some reason. I don't actually understand. I, I can't remember if it was... Um, I think it may have been Morris Blackburn lawyers. A whole bunch of people signed up for a class action and the lawyers basically said, oh, we don't think we can win this. The government have got the power to do what they're doing. Recently, there was an article from the former head of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which is the body where if you're disputing a Centrelink debt, they're the body that looks at that. And this person said that the way that that Centrelink are calculating these robo-debts is borderline fraud and the the um, the onus is on the Commonwealth to be a model litigant, which means the Commonwealth, even though it has the power to uh, kind of chase debts or whatever, it should still hold itself to a higher standard than, uh, for example, corporations would be held to. So if you're a bank or a phone company or a car loan company and you want to go and chase people for unpaid debts or whatever, you need to establish absolutely unequivocally in, in writing and with spreadsheets why you are owed this money. And that is, it, it has to be proved beyond any shadow of a doubt. What Centrelink are doing with these robo-debts is using an absolutely specious method to cook up debts. Uh, They don't stand up to scrutiny when you actually look at how they've been put together. Um, And this person who knows what he's talking about because he was the head of the bloody Administrative Appeals Tribunal says this... This is should be able to be challenged in the High Court of Australia. Yeah, so. I guess one of the things I like to say is um, it does seem quite arbitrary. The figure nine hundred million dollars. I mean, is that can they actually prove that um, these Australian um, these um, these Australians who have welfare debts it actually adds up to nine hundred million? I think nine hundred million is what their robo debt fraud machine has cooked up. Hmm. So the actual debt might be. You know, ten. But no doubt, there are some welfare debts. There are some people who've claimed Centrelink in a way that is against the rules. And this person who wrote this article was like, "That's not the issue here. It's not that Centrelink should never look for people who've rorted the system and try and recover debts. It's that you can't just fraudulently, fraudulently create a big phishing scheme and spam out fake mm. debts to people." Yeah. And I think there's also, I guess, 
one thing that has to be pointed out is the kind of hypocrisy um, about you know targeting this kind of uh, um, this kind of fraud because the reality is. <laughs> Corporations and businesses have participated in quite a lot of fraud. Um, uh, you know, have uh, a, there's a lot of tax invasion, a lot of cheating of um, a lot of corporations not paying tax, mm. and yet there doesn't seem to be a national scandal uh, no. about this. Yet they get this, the our federal government gets away with creating a bit of a scandal around you know mm. so-called welfare sheets. Yeah. Because it's not about raising revenue and it's not about being good economic managers. It's about kicking the crap out of the most marginalised group in society to put downward pressure on wages. It's about making being on welfare such a hellish and horrible experience that you are compelled to accept whatever rubbish, crappy job where you have no rights, you're not even getting paid the minimum wage because, hey, at least it's better than being on Centrelink and risking these horrible robo-debts and work for the dole and all the other patronising rubbish that you get put through. Hmm. Okay. I guess another... um, Moving on to a bit of um, international news, I kind of wanted to talk about basically this this statement. Just I wanted to talk a bit about um, some recent developments in the Middle East. And I think probably... I just wanted to read out a bit of a statement from um, Socialist Alliance on on the whole April 13 um, missile bombardment of Damascus uh, and Homs by the US, Britain and France and Syria. Um, and they um, they state here that the barrage of more than 100 missiles targeted free alleged um, chemical weapons-related um, installations belonging to Syria's Assad dictatorship, um, and it was justified as a response to reports of a chemical gas attack on Duma, a rebel-held suburb of Damascus, on April 7th that killed more than 40 people. And, of course, um, the, the, the US and British um, mi- missile attack also... Um, also took place also took place just hours before a fact finding team from the organization for the prohibition of chemical weapons arrived in Syria to investigate the Duma attack um, the OPCW is the implementing body of the chemical weapons convention and one of the things about this attack is they write they state here that you know this attack came without any UN or UN Security Council authorization and without the authorization of the parliaments of each of the governments involved in the attack uh, because one of the things uh, that should be rightly pointed out is a lot. Of, whenever our countries go out to war, they pretty much do it without no consultation of the people involved hmm. uh, in the governments. It's just the parliament just goes and boom, goes launches right into war. And Social Alliance here also condemned the Australian Labor Party's opposition for giving bipartisan support for the irresponsible, illegal and imperialist aggression. And, of course, their unprincipled response stands in stark contrast with that of British Labor leader Jeremy Corbyn, who condemned the attack as both wrong and misconceived. And... Um, in addition to that, um, you know, um, the Socialist Alliance opposes the use of chemical weapons and recognises the brutal record of the Assad dictatorship against the people of Syria, including its use of banned chemical weapons. However, imperialist military intervention has not and cannot end the, the Syrian civil war and the terrible suffering of the Syrian people. In fact, this imperialist intervention and the intervention of other regional powers has greatly contributed to their deaths, suffering and displacement of millions in Syria. And so, yeah, basically the kind of statement just summarises, you know, we, that 
such, um, that we oppose um, imperialist military intervention in Syria, including the deployment of Australian forces to Syria in um, 2014. And, you know, one of the issues of this is that it proves that Australia has time and time again been drawn into imperialist interventions abroad because of its war alliance with the US. And I think we need, we need to kind of... We need to make the kind of demand that we break that kind of uh, alliance with the um, wet war alliance with the US. We can't just keep pigeon um, towing behind um, whatever the US does, especially as Trump it could, you know, bring us into this into World War Three with uh, some of his recent um, moves. Mm. And the appointment of uh, John Bolton, uh, John Bolton, as the uh, national security advisor, who's the he's a total warmonger. Yeah, that's a long-standing demand, and it's an important one. We can't follow the US into every aggressive war that they mm. take on. Yeah, I guess just one thing to kind of comment about Syria is um, when I read the news um, last when I think it was last week, uh, it was almost interesting because it almost seemed, appeared like we'll go to... I mean, there was a lot of fear um, on social media that, oh, yes, we're going to be plunged into World War Three. What is does seem to be a bit weird, and there does seem to be lots of conflicting reports, and whatever I might say might not be completely correct. Um, but what's interesting is <laughs> is it's clear that um, that almost what the Trump administration kind of did with its bombings was almost like grandstanding in a way, and not actually a serious act of aggression. In fact, I've heard reports that they actually reported that they told whatever Russian troops or things were stationed to move out of the way. Um, basically, to and so at this point, it's quite. Cl- it doesn't seem like we're going to be in World War Three anytime soon. Um, although, if if any kind of sign of war um, was going to break out, we would would be very committed at FreeCR to opposing the war and opposing any uh, any Australian involvement in, in the war um, in our own country. So that's just a bit of a comment there. But there's still. Lots of complex dynamics, you know, happening around international relations, especially when you are also ex- um, uh, examining the uh, the complex dynamics of the Syrian civil war and so on. Hmm. This is Green Left Radio, and on the phone we have got uh, Scott Jordan from Save the Tarquine, the community-based group down in Tassie. Welcome, Scott. Uh, good morning. So, uh, yeah, tell us a bit about what's uh, what's the latest with the Tarquine. I mean, it's a long-standing... It's been a long-standing campaign to protect the Tarquine from uh, logging, and uh, what, what's the latest? Well, look, it's um, it's all all happening in the Tarquine at the moment. Um, we've we've got a, a forest camp uh, set up in the Franklin River area in the northwest of the Tarquine, um, defending two coops there that we successfully defended through last year's logging season, and and so far through this season, um, but while we're there, the, the loggers have moved out to other parts of the Tarquine, and so um, right at the moment we've got logging happening around the Pyman River in the southern end of the Tarquine, and we've got logging happening around the Rapid River in the in the north um, area of the Tarquine, and so um, along with partners Bob Brown Foundation and um, you know, conservationists from the general community, um, we've been uh, holding those camps and we've been... Um, you know, running uh, protest days to, to go out and walk onto some of those um, logging coops, particularly the, the Rapid River area, where um, 
a group of volunteers, 20 volunteers, in fact, walked on and stopped work yesterday um, in one of those coops in the Rapid River area. Yeah, nice. Um, now, the Liberal government's just been re-elected down there. What's, uh, what's the Liberal government's uh, approach to forestry policy and how's that feeding into the mix? Well, as you say, unfortunately, we've seen the Liberal government return for them um, by a single seat. Uh, and and so what that means for the forest is four more years of, of the Liberal Party's um, destructive policies towards logging the Tarkine. Um, we're seeing, under this current government, uh, areas that were protected under John Howard and Paul Lennon um, being... Um, yeah, not, not the first two names that roll off the tongue when you think of conservation, um, but areas they protected... Um, you know, going back into 2004-2005, um, will become available from 2020 to be logged in the Tarkine. So at the moment we've got um, logging of, of rainforest that should have been protected and from 2020 we'll have logging of rainforest that is supposed to be protected. Hmm. It's disgraceful. Um, so what's uh, how can people help i mean it sounds like you you'd, it'd be good if you can expand the uh the blockades to to other coops or you know try and stop uh, the loggers from going to other parts of the tarkine well that that's certainly true i mean bob brown foundation have been running the the camp in the franklin river uh area now they they ran it for 5 months uh over the last um season um, and we ran it for um, since February in, in this season. Um, we need to get through to June, sorry, through to June the 30th to protect those two coops. Um, we have a, a little provision in the Forest Practices Code in Tasmania that says you can't log um, during the eagle breeding season if there's a nest in the coop. And so uh, the two coops we're defending on the Franklin River both have eagle nests. And so the period between the 1st of February and the 30th of June is the area where the time that we need to defend those coops. The rest of the year, they're off limits. Um, unfortunately, in the Rapid River area, um, the, the two coops that are, are being um, smashed at the moment there uh, don't have eagle nests, and so they could continue those right through the winter. And so, you know, we, we certainly need more people on the ground. Um, numbers on the ground make a, make a huge difference to how many, um, you know, field sites we can run and how many... Um, Sort of actions we can take, but also, and for those that, that can't get down, um, you know, you can certainly help by by joining organisations like Bob Brown Foundation or Save the Tarkine, and and um, you know, donating to those groups. Or um, certainly in Melbourne, we actually have um, the amazing Emma Watson, based with the the Bob Brown Foundation, um, right in the heart of Melbourne, and and she's running um, activities through the Melbourne area to to try and bring attention on a national scale, to what's happening in the Tarkine. Oh, that's hilarious. I used to live with Emma. Oh, excellent. Yeah, she's, she's, she's an incredible campaigner. Yeah, cool. Good on her. Um, all right. Now, one of the uh, other aspects of this is that, obviously, Tasmania has a really booming um, tourism industry. That's a long-standing thing in Tassie. And one of the things that people go to see there, the main thing that people go to see, is the beautiful rainforests. Um, and so this is a serious kind of issue. You've, you've got like a short-term money for cutting down some trees and chipping them or whatever versus an ongoing tourism industry, yeah? Look, it is, and it's, it's, you're absolutely right. Tourism 
around the Tarquin is booming. We're seeing new operators coming in, uh, offering you know, guided walks and accommodation experiences. And, and the local economies you know, around the fringes of the Tarquin are really benefiting from that. Um, we're also seeing, though, a government that um, you know, was quite happy to um, stand and open the, the $23 million Tarquin Drive tourist experience. Um, yet now, if you drive along that Tarquin Drive tourist road, you'll you'll be faced with at least six active logging coops running right up to the road. And so, um, it's just completely at odds with with the tourism um, promotion that they're doing. And, you know, I can only imagine how devastated tourists must be to come here to see a, a beautiful rainforest that we're selling them and, and find that it's, you know, it's piles of logs and wood chips. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you know, the Tarkine's a big place. There's a lot of really great um, pristine areas in the Tarkine, but, but certainly this government is, is um, going hell for leather to, to try and um, convert it to... Um, you know, wood chip and, and you know, a small amount of peeler log. Um, it's a disgraceful um, thing that's happening and tourist operators are, are getting angrier about it. And um, the, the government really needs to decide what it wants to do. We, we lose money on, on logging native forests in Tasmania. We lost $53 million last year. It was $67 million we lost the year before that. Um, it's just crazy that we are, the public are paying to cut down... Uh, rainforests and deliver them to um, a handful of companies who are who are um, effectively becoming Tasmania's largest charities. It's lunacy, and I, I I used to door knock or not door knock. I used to canvas for um, the Wilderness Society many moons ago, back in sort of two thousand and four. In, in the lead-up to that election where I think Howard announced some kind of policy around Tassie Forest, so I'm a bit foggy about it all. Um, so what's the... Um, are there are there other chunks of uh, forest in Tassie that are being logged? And what's been the change since um, Guns Timber went out of business? Cause well, when, when Guns Timber went out of business, it was... It was really a game changer. Um, they had come to the position where they acknowledged that they logging of native forest was was no longer a viable business model. Um, their business was collapsing, and and uh, and in the end, did did in fact collapse. Um, it it changed the landscape quite a bit down here in terms of the rest of the industry was largely dependent on guns, wood chip um, facilities, uh, underwriting the the forest industry. And so what we're seeing now is, is without that underwriting, um, huge losses accumulating. Um, and and what it meant for small, um, some of the other players in the in the market was that uh, they just were no longer viable. And so they were, a lot of them um, chose to exit and they were given some government assistance to, to leave the industry you know, in a way that meant they didn't lose their house. Um, but unfortunately, the Liberals' plan was we're going to ignore economics and we're going to ignore the, the market and what they're telling us, and we're going to come in and we're going to pay those people to re-enter the industry, and we're going to pay them to to log uh, timber that they just can't um, possibly, you know, um, you know, produce at a profit. And so here we have the Tasmanian government um, running massive losses, funding the the logging of these areas, and delivering it to you know, groups like Taran who have a horrendous um, international reputation. Um, 
for deforestation in, in Southeast Asia and for um, you know, loss of orangutan habitat. Um, Tarian was, was coaxed to come to Tasmania and set up an operation and give it a massive subsidy and are, and are currently getting logs delivered to their, their front door at, at a fraction of the cost of harvesting them. It's, it's just obscene what is happening. All right. Um, so long term, how can we kind of permanently change this? What's the what's the kind of long term game plan to secure the Tarquine and all the other old growth in Tassie? Well, look, the, the the plan is that we we just need to get yeah progressively get louder and louder. Mm. Um, we have seen in the past um, whether it was through the the, the John Howard Paul Lennon forest deal in, in 2004 or previous iterations, that that when when this issue gets loud enough, that the politics will move around it to to, to try and um, address the, the issue. Mm. Now, it, it's often progressive. It's not um, it's not one magic wand that fixes all of it, but but certainly, um, you know, we've, we've got to raise the tempo of this campaign and, and make sure that, that across the nation it's becoming a, a, a word that people associate with forest conflict and, and with a need for government to step in and um, remedy the situation that's currently happening. And, and so certainly in Tasmania, we're, we're working very hard to make that happen. And, and with uh, Emma based in, in Melbourne there, we're, we're working hard to, to bring up a groundswell of, uh, of supporting in Melbourne. But we, we really need people across the country to stand up. And, and much like the you know, many years ago with the, the Franklin dispute, um, when people around the country stood up, then, then you know, the federal and state government had to act. Hmm. Yeah, sweet. All right. Well, um, keep fighting a good fight, and uh, we'll keep an eye out here in uh, in Melbourne. Um, and and yeah, look for ways to support the campaign. All right. Thank you very much. Wicked. All right. Thanks. Um, Scott Jordan there from um, Save the Tarquine, talking about the uh, ongoing community campaign to stop heavily government subsidised logging of the uh, old growth forest there, which is. Disgraceful and disgusting. Uh, all right, you're on Green Left Radio. We'll just have a quick announcement, and then coming up shortly, we'll have the activist calendar. Uh. Okay, um, so the first event um, that's happening tonight, which we're going to be talking about in greater detail with Dave Holmes from AFK, um, is the Emergency Organising Meeting um, Solidarity with AFRIN. Um, on this open organising meeting, we'll discuss what we can do next in the next weeks and months to spotlights Turkey's invasion and ethnic cleansing of, of AFRIN and put pressure on the Australian government to break its shameful silence on the issue. Um, that's happening at the Multicultural Hub tonight at uh, in the Purple room on 506 Elizabeth Street in the city opposite Victoria Markets and it's sponsored by Australians for Kurdistan, Kurdish Democratic uh, Community Centre and Kurdish Women's League. Um, there'll be a rally, Break the Silence on Climate Change on April the 22nd, Sunday, um, and they'll be at 1pm at the On Donald Gardens at St Kilda and it's organised by Friends of the Earth. Um, on next Monday, there'll be a forum on changing the rules for refugees. Um, that'll be happening at 6.30pm at uh, the ANMF at, the five, at 535 Elizabeth Street in the city. 
Change the rules for refugees. Yep. Nice. So just to uh, give a bit of um, context to the forum, um, Refugee Action Collective has um, called this forum and they've invited a number of um, Victorian trade union speakers, etc., to have this kind of discussion of linking the Change the Rules campaign um, um, to refu- around refugee rights. Nice. Um, but Victorian Trades Hall have, uh, ever since the Siege of Manus, have actually sponsored some support for the refugee rights campaign. I like it. Good to see um, there is uh, going to be another film screening of um, Stop Adani, uh, A Mighty Force on April the 29th. Um, and this is going to be happening, organised by the Jewish Ecological Coalition. Uh, and this is going to be happening at 7pm Sunday, April the 29th at, uh, at 55A Blessington Street, St Kilda. Um, the next event will be a film night, a May Day film night on Tuesday, May the 1st at 7pm at the Democratist um, Workers Club at 583 High Street in Northcote. Um, and Thursday, May the 30th, um, there'll be the May Day um, Rafe Lane, um, Lane at 5pm at the 8 Eight Hour Monument opposite Trades Hall. Uh, there will also be a May Day multicultural event at Thursday, the May the 3rd at 6pm at the Trades Hall Bar. And then now the big event on Sunday, the May the 6th, will be the big May Day March with music from 11am, March at 1pm at the Shreds Hall, um, at, which is at the Shreds Hall on Ligon Street in Carlton South. And then three days after that, there's the big change the rules rally. Yep. Um, now, on Tuesday, May the 8th, um, there'll be a public meeting. Um, the robots are coming. What would um, Mark say? Um, automation threatens paid paid employment while we're being subjected to the prolongation of intensified um, fragmented work periods within the same day. And they'll feature Humphrey McQueen, uh, Canberra-based historian, and they'll be at 7pm at the New International Bookshop at 54 Victorian Street in Carton South. Um, on Wednesday uh, 9th, there'll be uh, obviously the Change Rules Rally. They'll be at 10am outside Trades Hall at Ligon Street, and it's organised by Victorian Trades Hall Council. On Saturday, May the 12th, um, there'll be the Victorian Socialist Campaign launch at the Grace Darling Hotel at 7pm, um, which is sort of in walking distance of this studio. Um, there'll be a big Stop Adani Rise Up Northern event at 7pm at the United Church, um, and they'll be happening from... Um, They'll be happening at Friday, May the 18th at 7pm. And then there'll be the big um, Palestinian rally, um, 70 years, commemorating 70 years of Nakba. Um, they'll be at May 19th at 12 uh, noon at tw- um, State Library, and it's organised by Solidarity for Palestine. And then there'll be an art um, uh, exhibition, War Never Again, featuring the works of, well, features the works of a lot of different artists, but it'll be opened up by Rod Contact, who will open up the exhibition, and that is at 3pm at the Step Arts Gallery at um, um, 62 Ligon Street in Carlton. And all proceeds from the exhibition will be donated to ACAN and MAPAF to support the right of work they've been doing to ban nuclear weapons and promote peace. And it's Saturday, um, June the 2nd. There'll be the Big Red um, Book Fair um, in 2018. And come across, um, they'll be at uh, the New International Bookshop, 54 Victoria Street in Carlton South. And the last event I want to highlight here will be um, the annual Green Left Weekly Comedy Debate. Um, debating the topic, will Trump tweet us into oblivion? With um, Rod Contact being the master ceremonies. And that will be happening at Saturday, the June the 16th at uh, 6.30pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Yeah, sick. Sick. Uh, there was one other thing too. Where is it? 
I'm looking in my inbox. Um, oh, 29th of April, 10 a.m. till 2 p.m. There's the really, really free market in Preston. Uh, it's at the JS Gray Reserve. So you can look that up on Facebook. No money, barter or trade. So a bit of a little little foray into the anarchist gift economy there. If you want to go get amongst it. Hey, we've got Dave Holmes on the phone from Australians for Kurdistan. Uh, yeah, to, to talk about some um, Afrin solidarity. Welcome, Dave. Oh, good. Thanks, Zane. Uh, well, as people may know, uh, Afrin is a, a small region in northwestern Syria, right up against the Turkish border. And on uh, January 20 this year, it was invaded by Turkey, and it's now... Uh, occupied by Turkey and their uh, Islamist uh, proxies. Uh, this was formerly the most peaceful part of Syria, untouched by the war. Uh, originally, there were several hundred thousand largely Kurdish inhabitants there. They took in at least as many uh, refugees, mainly Arab, Syrian Arab refugees from war-torn parts of Syria and gave them full rights to jobs, political rights and so on. And all that was just too much for Turkey, which does not want to see a democratic, uh, feminist, um, uh, pluralist uh, society on its borders. It threatens the uh, very racist um, setup they have in Turkey itself, where Kurds, or about a quarter of the population, have... Uh, uh, really downtrodden um, and uh, subject to very heavy discrimination. So they've invaded and taken it out. Several hundred thousand people, 150 to 200,000 people have become refugees, largely Kurds. They've gone into just over the, the border of Afrin into um, the Sheba um, region um, where they're um, sitting in pretty uh, basic refugee camps. They get no uh, help from international agencies because uh, this is uh, they've been told they have to go to Turkey if they want to get aid, but then uh, Turkey's what caused all this in the first place. So guerrilla resistance continues in Afrin itself. Um, the uh, people in Shebar are trying to help the refugees as best they can with very limited resources. And there is total silence in the <laughs> Australian and Western media about this. Um, it really seems like it's, it, it's a conspiracy. Our government has said nothing. Um, they're lecturing Malcolm Turnbull lectures uh, Assad on it's impermissible to bomb and kill civilians any time, talking about uh, eastern Ghouta region outside of Damascus, which has been recently retaken. But he says nothing about what's happening in the north. So um, the Kurdish community here and their Australian supporters in groups like Australians for Kurdistan are trying to do what we can to raise the issue and uh, generate support. We've got tonight in the multicultural hub at 6.30, Purple Room, there's an emergency uh, all-in uh, organising meeting to plan solidarity activities uh, and discuss just what we can do and should do, so I urge any of your listeners who are free and interested, uh, come along. Uh, hmm. and, um, there'll be members of the Kurdish community there and 
other solidarity activists and we'll have a discussion on the whole situation. So that's the, the basic picture, Zane. Yeah. Can you tell us more about um, the types of solidarity activities that are sort of being proposed or have been tabled for kind of discussion? Sure. Well, uh, in, in, in Europe, uh, there is um, uh, a boycott campaign to boycott uh, Turkish uh, goods and tourism is getting underway. Um, I noticed the other day the mayor of Geneva in Switzerland called for a boycott, a, a tourist boycott of Turkey. I mean, why anyone would want to go there? Uh, it's not safe. Uh, and uh, a large part of the country and the Kurdish majority southeast is basically under under a form of, of, of military rule. Uh, Although um, traditionally across Europe, I think Turkey has, notwithstanding the fact that there's all this conflict there at the moment, but it, it's historically been a pretty popular tourist destination for... That, that's true. Europe. Well, as, as the mayor of Geneva said, uh, don't support war and ethnic cleansing. Mm. Let's, send a, let's send a clear signal to this regime... And I see that uh, Erdogan has gone to just called presidential elections, 19 months ahead of schedule. He's trying to ride uh, a sort of patriotic wave. You know, I'm the, the victor in the war and you need a, we need a strong leader, etc., etc., to get back in before um, the truth starts to come out. Turkish casualties, the fact that they've wrecked this lovely part of uh, Syria, etc., etc. So I think that's something that could really get legs. I mean, a number of Australians each year holiday in Turkey. We're urging them, please don't go somewhere else. Uh, and we also want to demand that the Australian government end its silence. We're urging it to recall its ambassador from Turkey until such time as Turkey gets out of Afrin and a ban to, to end immediately all military and security cooperation with, with Turkey. It's just unconscionable that we're doing this at a time when they're carrying out these, uh, this criminal uh, war and occupation, and to use our influence in the United Nations to, to raise this issue and uh, have uh, Turkey pilloried. I, I guess, um, can you um, make any, have any other kind of final comments that, that you'd like to make about this organising meeting happening? Well, I just, if, if anyone's uh, free and able to come, uh, please do. Uh, it, it's open to anyone who wants to get down to business and talk about what we can do. I mean, there's all sorts of ideas floating around. Um, <coughs> having uh, big information stalls in the city with... with uh, banners and placards, hand out leaflets, talk to uh, commuters and so on. Um, and, uh, of course, rallies and, uh, and, and, and meetings and so on and anything else that uh, people want to raise. The, the, the main thing is to try to break through in some way the media boycott, to try to talk to ordinary people. I think there's a great sympathy for the plight of the... Uh, Kurdish population in the Middle East. There's a wide recognition that they've been treated shamefully. There's a tremendous admiration for the uh, staunch Kurdish fighters, particularly the, the female fighters. There's a whole women's army in the Kurdish freedom movement, some 25,000 Kurdish and Arab and Assyrian women who have fought uh, so bravely against the Islamic State 
uh, and were instrumental in retaking Raqqa, the former IS capital in northern Syria. So, I mean, we're trying to bring some of that together and, and give people uh, um, a, a concrete um, outlet for that sympathy to, to, to join with us in um, trying to bring about some justice. Hey, I think that'll be pretty much it. Right. All right, sweet. Uh, thanks for talking to us. Uh, no worries, talking to us Thank you. And that's uh, that's at the Purple Room at the Multicultural Hub. Did you say six thirty tonight? Six thirty tonight. All right, just near Vic okay. Markets there. See you there. All right, wicked. Thanks, Dave. Bye. Listening to Green Left Weekly Radio, we're coming right into the end of the program. Uh, it's eight nineteen a.m. Um, I just want to talk about kind of the current. Um, just this is um, reading, um, discussing this article from Green Left Weekly written by Lisa Gleeson on the current kind of situation around Palestine. And this article is kind of titled Resilient Gazans Defy Israeli's Killings. And probably listeners heard that, you know, on what began as a, um, you know, um, just like... Um, this year's land day, um, this space is talking about the big kind of out Nabka process that's going to be happening um, in in Palestine. And this kind of began as a protest in 1976 after a rash of land confiscations by Israel and was met by Israel with the killing of of six unarmed Palestinians. Land Day each um, March 30th is an annual focal point for Palestinian frustration as uh, being forcibly displaced and unable to return home. Um, This year's Land Day was the start of the Great March Return campaign that will run up to Al-Nakba on May 15th. Al-Nakba marks the founding of the Israeli state on the back of the dispossession of the hundreds and thousands of Palestinians. Many in Gaza are refugees from these events um, 70 years ago. Um, thousands of Palestinians in Gaza gathered near the war, marking the border Israel ma- maintains and uses to impose a brutal siege for the past decade. Conservative um, Israelis decried the horror of Palestinian terrorists provocatively, uh, um, provocatively um, marching to coincide with the Jewish Passover celebrations. Gazans to continue to flock to the border and set up camp. And, of course, in response, what happened is, you know, Israeli soldiers opened fire on unarmed protesters, shooting some of them in the back as they fled. According to the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs for the Occupied Palestinian Territories, Land Day ended with 18 Palestinian deaths and more than 1,400 injuries. One week later, for the Friday of the Great Return March return, Palestinians again gathered to be shot once more by Israeli snipers. The April 6 protests ended with six dead, including one journalist and two children. Still, Gazans insist that you know these protests will continue week by week until May 15th. And I think um, just to talk a bit, kind of some of the response to this, in you know, health workers have been targeted as as they attempted to street casualties. The World Health Organization reported on April six, uh, five ambulances were targeted with live ammunition and tear gas canisters, injuring twenty nine medical staff. Such illegal behaviour prompted the International Criminal Court to remind all parties that violence directed at civilians is a crime. And, but of course, um, one of the one of the issues is here between this sort of uh, this sort of conflict is that, in term, the mainstream media have been reporting on these events as clashes between Israelis and Palestinians, or but ignoring, as Gleason writes here, the illegality of Israelis' complete 
uh, completely disproportionate response. Clashes implies a more or less in fair fight between equals, not the calculated slaughter of civilians. Mm, across the border. Mm. And Snipering across the border. Yes. At people in their own country. And, of course, the fact that Israeli forces fired on a captive population with um, live immersion, also delivering tear gases, um, tear gas via drones, have passed largely without comment in the West. Instead, some media outlets have cl- highlighted the Israeli claim that only infrastrators trying to breach the border between Gaza and Israel were fired upon in a justified act to defend Israeli's borders. And, of course... Um, you know, the Israeli Defence Force appeared to recognise it may have overstepped the propaganda mark. However, a March twenty, uh, a March thirty first tweet boasted of its actions the day before. Nothing was carried out uncontrolled. Everything was accurate and measured, and we know where every bullet landed. Um, and sort of just now talking about kind of the international response, discussing in Australia, emergency protests took place in several cities against Israelis. Um, um, killings despite an almost total silence from our politicians about the situation in Gaza. Um, Greens laid uh, Richard Natale's statement encouraged, encouraging the government to break its silence on Israel's actions were welcome, but no other leader no other leader or MP has said anything. Foreign Minister Julie Bishop has been you know, of silent. <laughs> Um, and I guess a clear kind of state, um, counter state example was shown in Britain, where opposition Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn issued a statement read out at pro-Palestinian protests on April 7th, 7th that you know described um, Israeli's killings as an outrage and insisted the silence from international powers must end. And then Corbyn notes here noted that the majority of the people of the Gaza Strip are stateless refugees, subject to a decade-long blockade and the denial of basic human and political rights. More than two-thirds are reliant on humanitarian assistance with limited access to the most basic amenities such as water and electricity. And, of course, that they have a right to protest against their appalling conditions and their continuing blockade and occupation of Palestinian land and in support of their right to return to their homes and their right to self-determination. Um, so that's, that's just a bit of a summary uh, in the article written by Lisa Gleeson um, about the kind of current situation. And I just want to remind you that there'll be a big... Um, it's all in the lead-up to this big, um, massive pro- um, protest um, on May the 15th, which will be happening all around the country or all around the world. And the one in Melbourne will be happening on May the 19th at 12pm at the State Library. Word. Hmm. All right. Um, so I just want to, um, we're getting low on time, but I did get a bit of a, there was a bit of a news story. Actually, I just wanted to, I can't find, I've got to find it quickly. Um, but this is just relating to Cuba. Um, but apparently Cuba has picked a, a new president. Yes. Um, who the name of which I'm just trying to get. Yeah, I think um, Raul Castro has stood down. And the new um, president of Cuba is a 57-year-old, another bloke, unfortunately, I mean, I think Cuba has got one of the most, um, uh, one of the best sort of levels of gender equality in its parliament of, of any government in the world. But uh, once again, it's a male, which is, you know, would have been maybe nice if a woman could have been president of Cuba. Um, but yeah, this guy I've heard is a engineer. 
And yeah. his name is Miguel Diaz Canel. And he is going to be succeeding Raul Castro as the as the president of Cuba. So we're in for some interesting times, I think. And also, he just like the Castros before him, he is a committed anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist. And is basically he was sort of quoted as saying that capitalism won't be restored in Cuba. If mm. I'm paraphrasing him correctly, <laughs> which will no doubt result in plenty of. The Murdoch media saying, oh, well, now that the Castro brothers are out of the way, capitalism is going to be coming back at any, any moment now in Cuba. Mm. Mm. All right. Well, in the very near future, in about 20 seconds or so, I'm going to chuck on the outro. And you know what that means? Beyond Zero Emissions are going to bustle into this studio and set up and hit you with another wicked half hour of coverage on renewable energy and climate change and cool stuff. So, stick around. This has been Green Life Radio. You are still tuned to Melbourne's most rad radio station, 3CR. I've been Zane. Jacob's been Jacob. It's been real. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. And we'll catch you again next week.